Uh, if you're new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan, one of the pastors here. Warm welcome. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on Luke's gospel. We're going to finish it before Christmas, would you believe? Uh, so it's exciting. We're really getting to the climax as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And uh, I'm going to read this word of God to us. And I'm going to pray and uh, ask the Lord for help. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. This is the word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Would you pray with me? Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Well, God, as your people, we come before you recognizing this morning that we are dependent on you. Lord, we long to see 
our lives transformed to be radically devoted to the Lord Jesus. We long to see you use this gathering for the bold proclamation of your kingdom in this city. And so we invite you, Lord Jesus, come, open our eyes, soften our hearts, help us see you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you will know that uh, prior to this year, I worked as a physiotherapist running a small business, uh, working with people who found it hard to go out and see a physio. Uh, Many of my clients were elderly and frail, and they would describe to me the many hours they would spend in doctor's waiting rooms. Uh, They, Many of them needed help to get ready in the morning, and they had frequent ailments and frequently would describe feeling exhausted. A common thing that many of them would say to me over the years was this. You don't know how good you've got it until you lose your health. You don't know how good you've got it in life until you lose your health. And that's true. The vast majority of us in this church are younger and in good health. Uh, We rarely spend much time thinking, for most of us, or thanking God for the fact that we have great health. And in fact, it's only when you lose your health often that you realize for the first time how blessed, in fact, you were. My point this morning is this, it's easy to take things that are overly familiar to us for granted. You know, when Charlotte and I were newly married in 2014, I remember the shock I felt at the ways in which she wanted to serve me. You know, I'd been living out of home as a bachelor for more than 11 years, and I was used to doing everything myself, picking up my mess, cooking dinner, washing clothes, and I was so incredibly thankful and and felt a bit guilty about how much she was doing around the house. And it's funny how eight years later, what was a crazy blessing can become an expectation, even irritation if things aren't done in a timely manner. And so just this week, I was reflecting on the blessing I have in Charlotte, and I felt my heart being stirred with thanks for the goodness of God, the undeserved kindness of God towards me in her. You know, what is true of things in life is also true of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's so easy to be overly familiar with what our King is like, and to, in fact, take Him for granted, not to be filled with thanksgiving towards God for who He is and what He is like. And our passage is different from the other Gospels this morning in that Luke doesn't actually describe uh, or document Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He simply describes His procession towards it. And as the crowds rejoice, and as Jesus approaches, it's as though He's inviting us to stop and to stare at him, and to appreciate afresh 
what this king is like. If you're a note taker this morning, I've entitled uh, this message, A Procession for the King. I've got three points this morning. Uh, we're going to be spending, as seems to be my habit, most of the time on the first point, uh, but really one really hope for our time this morning, and that's simply this, that we'd experience the joy that comes from simply stopping and staring at our Lord Jesus the King. That's what I want us to do this morning. That's what I believe this passage calls us as a church to do, is to stop and stare at this King and to experience the joy that comes from that. So let's dive into point number one, the humble King of peace. You know, if you're new to Luke, just by way of context, uh, the disciples and Jesus are finally right near to Jerusalem having begun this journey all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke's gospel, where Luke writes that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. But this had tempted the disciples to have some seriously wrong ideas about what was just about to take place in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus told them a parable last week that we looked at to adjust their expectations. He told them a parable about a prince who leaves to claim his throne as a king. And he entrusts some of his wealth to 10 of his servants. And although this king was initially rejected by the citizens of his kingdom, he claims the throne and returns to visit his servants, judging them according to their faithfulness with his wealth. And Jesus' message is simple. Don't expect me to claim the throne immediately and without resistance. I'll first be rejected, but I will eventually be victorious and I'll return to judge all of my citizens and my servants. Now, the question is, why did Jesus' disciples have such wrong ideas about what would happen to him in Jerusalem? It's easy to forget because we've got like 2,000 years of reflecting on what happens in the gospel. Well, the truth is that nearly 600 years of conflict had given God's people, the Israelites, very specific ideas about what the coming king should look like. Ideas and expectations that made it so easy to dismiss Jesus out of hand. Well, first of all, you have the Babylonians who had come and destroyed the, the kind of two last remaining counties in Israel, in the south of Israel, and exiled most of the people to Babylon in 586 B.C., the Persians later released the Israelites, but only a few actually ever returned over a period of about 15 years in the 500s BC. And what follows is the rise and fall of multiple empires who repeatedly push around the people of God in Judea, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. There's a brief kind of like underground resistance movement led by a guy called Judas the Maccabean, uh, otherwise, or Judas the Hammer, sorry, otherwise known as the Maccabeans. Uh, and finally, the Romans invade and conquer Judea under Pompey the Great in 63 BC, about 90 years before our passage was written. And so for Jesus' disciples, the last 600 years of their history had been dominated by war after war after war with empire after empire taking over their land and next to no respite. 
Now imagine with me how this would affect their reading of passages that talk about the coming of a great king in the line of David. A king especially anointed by God, a Messiah, a Christ in Greek who would rule forever. You know, we're so familiar with the stories that we lose the sense of what God's people must have expected. You know, the prophet Nathan said the following to David about a thousand years before our passage. He says the following in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. He says to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These passages would have filled God's people with incredible hope. There's a coming king and kingdom that will be invincible. This specially anointed king with God's unique blessing will smash all of our enemies, and allow us to live under his protection forever. Now imagine with me the sense of anticipation among the disciples as they begin their ascent to Jerusalem, about 750 meters above sea level. This is the moment when the king is going to take hold of the throne in Jerusalem. He will rally a great army, The Romans will crumble and flee. He will rule and reign forever in Jerusalem and restore the promised land and the kingdom of David forever. This is the critical moment in our history. Finally, we will be free as a nation forever. But Jesus is going to reveal to us in this procession as it unfolds, that these are merely the thoughts of men. He has a far different agenda because he is a different kind of king. Now read with me the beginning of our passage again from verse 28. Luke writes, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Jesus, having finished the parable of the returning king, rejected by his subjects, but victoriously returning to judge, begins the ascent into Jerusalem from the east, taking his disciples up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is actually a mountainous ridge about 70 meters in elevation above Jerusalem with these two villages lying on its slopes, one called Bethphage and the other called Bethany. And from the Mount of Olives, the disciples would be able to see Jerusalem spread out beneath them. You know, as we stop and stare at our king, there's something Luke wants us to see about the Lord Jesus. 
He is completely in control of the events as they unfold. Now, in some ways, Jesus is far greater than disciples could ever imagine. He is the divine son of God. He is the God man. He formed the universe before history began. And he has this supernatural insight into what is going to happen, even to the smallest detail. There will be a young donkey tied up in the village ahead. He also knows this donkey has never been ridden. Uh, In Jewish sacrificial law, this kind of symbolizes purity. It's also appropriate for a king's mount that could only be ridden by a king. More, Jesus anticipates that the cult's owners will challenge these two disciples and he tells them what to say in order to secure the donkey's release. And they enter the village and events unfold exactly as Jesus had foretold. You see, as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, he is in complete control of every detail. Not only had he prophesied multiple times about his upcoming crucifixion, but he's the master of everything that is to take place, orchestrating events as they occur. You know, it's common to find people who look at the crucifixion of Jesus as kind of like a tragic event in history. And there's a great truth to that. This is the murder of the Son of God. It's evil and it was tragic. But there is one thing it was not. It was not an accident. Jesus is purposefully marching toward Jerusalem to die. And he is in full control. But there's something else of deep significance in this passage that we can easily overlook. And that is the fact that Jesus chose to ride on a young donkey. You see, victorious kings and generals in Jesus' day would often conduct these kind of victory parades. But here's one thing for sure. They wouldn't ride on a young donkey. They would ride on a war horse or a stallion or in a chariot ready for battle. And this is what likely Jesus' disciples would have kind of envisaged as they imagined his triumphant procession into Jerusalem. You know, sword raised, mounted on a war horse. But the truth is that you do not ride a young donkey into battle. A donkey is a farming animal. A donkey is an animal of peace. See, Jesus is not coming as the great general of the nation of Israel. He's not coming as the liberator from the Romans. He's coming in humility, on a common working animal. He is coming in peace. But even more than this, Jesus is fulfilling an ancient prophecy that the prophet Zechariah saw of a coming day when all of the enemies of God's people would be defeated and they would be rescued and their long promised king would come. And Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 writes the following. He says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Zechariah saw the coming of a king to Jerusalem who would be righteous. He would be pure in character. He would come having salvation. That word in Hebrew means having victory. This would be a victory parade. And he would be humble. 
You know, we tend to think of the word humble as referring to someone who kind of has a low estimate of, of their own sort of value or importance. Oh, don't worry about me. You go first kind of thing. But the word here in Hebrew literally means poor, dependent on others. And when applied to a king, it means accessible, on our level. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, Washington, D.C., in the U.S., when the president's motorcade goes past. I remember it happened to me many years ago. First, when you hear the sirens of the police uh, and the Secret Service cars, and then maybe a helicopter in the distance, you think, what has happened? Like, is there a terrorist event, or is someone in trouble with the law, or something like that, or there's been a big accident, or something like that? And then as the sirens get closer and closer, you're likely to see like uh, two police motorbikes drive past, followed by like these massive black SUVs like traveling at high speed, followed by like two huge like tank looking cars with American flags on the front driving by by more black SUVs after that and more motorbikes on the back. And it's like this huge, like massive or like awe-inspiring kind of event if, it, if you happen to uh, be close enough to see it. But here's the question. What does it tell you about the president of the USA? Well, it tells you two things, I think. It tells you he's important. And secondly, it tells you he's highly protected. Is he accessible? Can you just go and say hi to him? Absolutely not. Everything screams of you stay away. How different the coming and going of those who are great in the eyes of the world is when compared with Jesus. He enters into Jerusalem with victory inside, but not in splendor, but in poverty. Not on a war horse, but on a young donkey. He comes to us carrying peace on our level, with us, one of us, ready to give his very own life. You see, Jesus' victory parade into Jerusalem must have been puzzling to his disciples. See, Jesus had already told them multiple times about his mission to humbly suffer and die for them. And yet we read in chapter 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. They simply could not get over their cultural expectations. The Messiah must be a mighty military leader to liberate his people. Now in due course of time, this will be true, but his manner, his method, and his means were completely different from their expectations. Now, the truth is that it's easy to kind of go like, tut, 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 oh, those silly disciples, and shake our heads. How could they have missed it? So obvious. He says it so many times. And yet an honest evaluation reveals that we have our own set of cultural expectations that make it hard for us to see Jesus in his procession. You know, we might not be tempted to believe that Jesus intends to lead a military campaign to liberate Australia from an oppressive regime, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our own cultural blinkers. They're just different cultural blinkers. And as we stare at our Lord Jesus heading to Jerusalem, I just want to pause on one example, one cultural pressure that makes it so hard for us to truly see the kind of procession our king is leading us on. 
And that is simply expressive individualism, our individualistic culture. That's our me-centered culture that puts ourselves at the center of our lives and our world. See, we naturally look at Jesus riding on this donkey on his way to Jerusalem, and we naturally believe that the humble procession towards the cross that Jesus is leading us on is not one that we have to follow. Now, put another way, that Jesus is purchasing a ticket to heaven for us rather than purchasing and taking ownership of our very lives, of leading us to follow him in his way of life. Should Jesus be part of our lives? Absolutely, of course, but not our whole life. That's crazy. You know, we should still be able to have it all. Should there be some cost to following Jesus? Of course there should be, as long as it doesn't stop me from having the things I want. I still want that promotion, and I still want those holidays up the coast. I still want those extracurriculars for my kids and the private education and a large home in this neighborhood. Sacrifice any of these for Jesus? That sounds a bit extreme to me. It sounds like you're taking things a little bit too far. And yet when we pause and we cast our eyes on Jesus and his march towards Jerusalem, what do we see? We, we see a love for God and others that leads him to embracing suffering for them. We see him humble and poor, the king of glory on a donkey, moving towards us in love. And rather than charting his own path, a free agent who perhaps attends church but mainly is captivated by his own desires, he submits himself to the will of God for our sake. And that is point number one, friends, the humble king of peace. Jesus came in humility, in poverty, bringing peace, not war, with a glorious mission to die for us, but a mission that no one expected, confounding, confusing the expectations of his disciples. But not point number one, the humble king of peace, but also point number two, the king of creation. You see, our Lord, uh, our king in his procession is shown to be even more than merely the king of the nations, but the king of the whole universe. Why don't you read with me verse uh, 35 through 37. We read the following says this. And they brought it to Jesus, that's the cult, and throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen. You know, they bring the donkey to Jesus and they place their cloaks on it, which is a sign of homage to a king. And they place Jesus upon the, the, the donkey itself, a kind of enthroning of him. And then they use their cloaks as a kind of red carpet. And the donkey walks upon the red carpet as they begin to go down the Mount of Olives and descend into Jerusalem. And there's a crowd of disciples uh, that are formed along the way and their excitement is beginning to overflow as they're rejoicing and praising God for what they've seen Jesus do over the last three years. And you can imagine the kind of things that they're calling out. Glory to God, he heals the sick. He gives blind to the sight, he forgives sins. Hallelujah, praise God. He raises the dead, he casts out demons, he cleanses lepers, he makes the lame dance for joy, he leads sinners to repentance. This is the promised king, 
Make way for the king. He's headed for Jerusalem. And these excited disciples even take a famous pilgrim's psalm and insert the words, the king, into it. We read it in verse 38. They say the following, Blessed is the king, not he, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But for some of the Pharisees who are looking on, this is beginning to get out of hand. These are dangerous things to be saying when the Roman emperor is Tiberius, who was king in Judea, and Pontius Pilate is his governor. More, it's almost blasphemous for an uneducated pauper from a rural backwater and nobody to be claiming to be God's anointed king. And so they say the following, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, Tell your disciples to stop this. You're going to get us into a load of trouble if you keep this out. We're just outside of Jerusalem. Do you understand what will happen to you if you let these people make these kind of crazy claims about you? And what Jesus says in response is massive in its implications. Read with me verse 40. He says the following. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these crowds stop rejoicing and proclaiming me to be king, even the stones on the path would cry out, says Jesus. Jesus is saying, creation itself longs to sing my praise. The message of the Bible is more than simply that people are broken due to our rebellion against God, but the world is broken as well. In Genesis 3, God, in response to our rejection of his fatherly care, curses the ground itself. It's meant to be kind of a living picture of our relationship with God, our Father in heaven, that the world is broken. And the result of God's curse is that the whole physical world longs for God to restore it to himself. And Paul writes the following in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth into now groaning with a sense of anticipation about what God intends to do. Jesus is saying that the earth itself knows who I am and longs for me to finish my course and to set it free from decay. Even the stones can see that I am their creator king. But this is not the only hint that Jesus is the king of creation from our passage. See, when Jesus prepares the disciples For what to say to the animal's owner, he says the following in verse 31. He says this. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. The ESV says the Lord has need of it, but actually, more literally, it says its Lord has need of it. Jesus literally says, tell them the Lord of this donkey has need of it. And then Jesus effortlessly rides into Jerusalem on an animal that has never been written. Now, because we live in a city and we're not familiar with this, anyone who raises donkeys or horses will know that untrained animals do not naturally allow people to ride them. They have to be trained. And perhaps that's what leads to the owner's question, why are you taking this animal? Or put another way, what use is an untrained colt? But when its Lord sits upon it, there's a kind of peace that descends. This is the master of the universe. 
as the prophet Isaiah says of the coming root of Jesse, the coming Messiah, in Isaiah 11, verse 6, And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is the king who spoke to the storm and said, Peace and be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is the master who puts his feet on the waves and they bow down to allow him to step on their back. You know, can I ask a personal question of us this morning, church? Is this king of all creation the one who has captured your gaze today? You know, the truth is that it is so easy to be captivated by a vision of Jesus who is weak and distant and powerless to help us in our time of need. You know, in a small way, I kind of experienced this when we were up the coast in, in Noosa. Uh, we, we had really sick kids for the first week. Uh, Isaac in particular, you know, one of these COVID babies, high fevers. We couldn't seem to get the fever under control for six days. And on the sixth day, he was like getting really lethargic and we were getting concerned about him. And um, so we were calling up like Dr. David and things and asking what they think. And here's the thing, we didn't even think about asking our gospel community to pray. And something occurred to us, well, we should ask people to pray for Isaac. We weren't sure what to do. And when we asked people to pray, literally within a few hours, there was a near immediate change in his condition. And it kind of left us thinking, why didn't we ask earlier for people to pray for, for this little boy? You see, so often we have a picture of Jesus humble and gentle, but powerless. But this is the one for whom all earth longs to sing his praises. You see, to see Jesus rightly as he truly is, is to see the king of creation. And this should kind of give us a fearlessness to our faith. It should give us a heart that is quiet and still in a world of noise and anxiety. It should lead us to be willing to embrace risk for the cause of Christ because he is with us and for us. And that is point number two, not just the humble king of peace, but the king of creation. And brings us to our final point, point number three, the king of mercy as well. Why don't you read with me verse 41 of our passage. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. See, Jesus reveals to us that the heart of God is not distant or unmoved, but filled with compassion for his people. But the obvious question is, what has moved him to tears? And so we read on verse 42 saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from you, your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And what Jesus describes in these verses is a horrifically detailed prophecy of a coming massacre that would take place some 40 years later in AD 70. The Roman army under General Titus would come and build a ramp out around the city. That's like a trench with the big posts all the way around to stop anyone from leaving. And for five months, 
he would lay siege to the city until on the 30th of August, AD 70, he would finally break through to the city walls and destroy the city completely, just as he had prophesied. The ancient historian Josephus records that there was indeed a slaughter of men and women and children, and the city was virtually razed to the ground. Why? Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, Jesus looking down upon Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives is filled with sadness and longing for the people of Jerusalem because they've missed the time of visitation for their returning king. Though he is in fact their maker and sustainer, though he is in fact the divine son, he has been despised and rejected and so their fate is sealed. He weeps because he sees the coming judgment of God upon them. His heart is filled with mercy and compassion for them. You know, a passage like this can raise many questions for us. Why would God bring such horrible judgment upon these people? Why would God allow the Romans to to do this? And, And why are some killed while others go? Or in general, why does he choose some people and not others? You know, while our many questions may not be answered by this passage, one thing is for sure. Though the judgment is severe, his heart is filled with mercy and compassion for he weeps for them. In fact, mercy and compassion is why he continues to lead this procession towards Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in the first place. You see, some four days later on Maundy Thursday, he would be betrayed and arrested. The very next day, despite being found innocent, he would be tortured and mocked and publicly humiliated and crucified outside the gates of this city, his city. But this was all in accordance with God's plan. It was the reason for which he had come. Though he is the humble king of peace, though he is the king of creation, his death upon the cross was not a defeat. Onlookers would have believed it was. The cross appeared proof he was not the Messiah. This looked like a horrendous defeat at the hands of his own people and the Romans. But this king's, this was this king's greatest victory. It was mission accomplished. You know, there's a sobering warning in our passage for anyone who has missed the time of his visitation, the coming of Jesus, or by refusing to receive him as their Lord and Savior. It warns of judgment for those people. But upon the cross, the Lord Jesus took the judgment upon himself. He took the punishment for our sins and paid for it in full. He was raised back to life on the third day and offers perfect life to anyone who comes to him, willing to trust him and to follow him. You know, I can't help but think back to the story Jesus had just told his disciples about a king whose own citizens rejected him. After sending a delegation to tell him not to come back to them. What a massive betrayal. How tempting it would be to sulk, to come back with wrath. How many kings in response would be willing to suffer and die for these same people. Friends, behold our King of mercy. Now, as we close our time together, it's true that we often begin to take for granted the things that are overly familiar. Close friends and family, freedoms or a spouse or a health, even our Lord Jesus. I trust that Spending this time staring at Jesus has begun to have a warming effect upon your heart, whether you're trusting him today or you're new to Jesus. And my hope that is for all of us, it would leave us wanting to stop and stare at him even more 
to give thanks for the amazing king he is. You know, so I wanted to end this time together with a story. It's a story of the life-transforming effect of stopping and staring at Jesus that can have upon a person. That's in fact the story of Kanishka Raffle, who last year was appointed the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. See, for many of us, you may not be aware, but from childhood all the way through to his first years as a student at uh, University of Sydney, Kanishka Raffle was a committed Buddhist. Uh, He writes, we were raised Buddhist, my two sisters and I. My mother schooled us in Buddhist prayers and chanting. As a small child, we would do that every night before I went to bed. Now, despite all this, uh, although he practiced Buddhism, Kanishka admits that he was largely uninformed about it until he reached his third year at university. Kanishka says the following. He says, I reached the age of 20 and thought, well, I don't really know very much about this, so I read a number of books about Buddhism. And by the end of that year, I was actually more Buddhist than I had ever been in my life. I was better informed. I learned the message, uh, the meaning of the words, and I had, uh, I had chanted since childhood, and I was practicing meditation on my own. But at the end of that year, Kanishka went on a holiday with friends from uni, some of whom were Christian. And that holiday turned out to be a turning point in his life. Kanishka says, I had a conversation with one friend in particular, which was really crucial. He said in the course of that conversation, uh, I asked him what it meant for him to be a Christian, and he replied, being a Christian means I've lost control of my life to Jesus Christ. You see, his friend's answer was both unexpected and confronting to him. And so Kanishka explains the following. He says, as a Buddhist, I was engaged in an activity which was aimed at achieving mental and spiritual control. So to hear someone I respect and admire say that they'd lost control to a figure that was long dead, it was a breathtaking answer and why it stayed with me, I suppose. See, Kanishka's friend gave him a copy of John's Gospel and sometime later Kanishka began to read it, an experience which he found vastly different to reading the Buddhist scriptures. Kanishka says, Jesus emerges in the Gospel as this vital character. He has friendships and emotions. He is engaged in controversy and conversation. He is puzzling and intriguing to the people around him. And to me as the reader, in comparison, you get very little sense of the personality and personhood of the Buddha from Buddhist scripture. It's a disembodied voice. So here in the gospel was something that had a real gritty historicity about it. This was very challenging to me. You see, although his understanding of Christianity was still minimal at that point, the word of God had a significant impact on him much to Kanishka's shock. Kanishka writes, I was a very surprised Christian. I didn't have any interest in Christianity at all. And suddenly I found that God had revealed his love in Jesus. And that was life-altering for me. Friends, the truth is, looking at Jesus can transform your life. It's amazing to consider what God has done in Kanishka's life. Would we experience the joy that comes from simply stopping and staring at our King, the Lord Jesus? Would you pray with me? Well, God, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege of glimpse of glory that we have seen this morning in your word. To see the Lord Jesus not riding with sword raised on a stallion, but humble on a young donkey in poverty 
lowly like us, making his way into Jerusalem, not for the citizens to bow down in worship to him, but to lay down his life, to die for our sake, that we could know you and love you. Oh Lord, we are the most privileged of all people to know Christ, to love Christ, to follow Christ. Lord, would you give us even greater a glimpse of his glory that we might never lose our gaze from him and that we might be transformed from one degree of glory into his likeness that our lives might be filled with joy to his praise all our days we pray this in Jesus name